0: Well, we're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, and if you were with us last week, you know that we, uh, we, we sort of spent some time last week and even in the week prior to that leaning into and, and doing our best to wrap our arms around one of the sternest warnings in all of the Bible, uh, certainly one of the sternest warnings in the book of Hebrews. There is in uh, the end of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six a text where essentially the author, has, uh, he, he's, he's writing inspired by the Holy Spirit. He, he starts to talk about Jesus as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then he kind of, he presses pause on that. And he says, well, there's some things that I want to share with you. Things that are heavy, uh, that are weighty. Things that are like the, the meat of the spiritual life. And he says, but I can't share those things to you because you're still spiritual infants. In fact, you're content to be spiritual infants in that you live on Milk. You're still living on milk. Instead, he says, you have to grow up. You have to grow up by having your heart and mind trained and grown through discerning the difference between good and evil, living, doing something with the milk of God's word. And so as we come into chapter six, then he says, so let's move on from maturity. Let's not get stuck in this place where we're just repeating uh, ad nauseum, the, the basic fundamentals, the building blocks of our faith, but let's move on to more concrete things. He says, and this we will do if God permits. And that's where we sort of got into the heavy stuff last week because he says it's important for you to know that there are people, there are those who have been around the things of faith, right? They've tasted and experienced and seen and they have some knowledge and understanding of the things of God, but even as enlightened as they are, they have turned away from God. And in that case, if they know who Christ is, if they know what he's done, if they know his value, they've experienced his community and yet they've rejected it, There's nowhere else for them to go. There is no repentance left for those who've seen and tasted and known who God is and yet rejected him. Those people, he says, at the end of the text we studied last week are like ground upon which the blessing of God's rain sort of pours. And yet instead of producing fruit and the blessing of God, they produce thorns and thistles. He says at the end of the warning, he says to those who've just sort of been fakers, those who've kind of sat around the periphery of faith and yet not trusted in Christ, he says ultimately those people are worthless. He says they're in danger of being cursed and they're good for nothing but to be burned. I mean, I I think we all have to admit as we walked out of the study last week, there's a heaviness that comes with a text like that. There's a heaviness that goes, I need to pay really careful attention, which was the author's point. But sometimes with a with a heavy warning or with a stern warning, there's also a danger that it can become so terrifying to us that it almost becomes uh, incapacitating, right? That it almost completely, it, it freaks you out to the point where you kind of don't know how to take next steps. I, uh, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Alaska just one time in my life. I was on tour with a band, and we went to Alaska, and it was cool. We did a couple of concerts there, but we also got to do some sightseeing, and Alaska... Alaska's incredibly beautiful, but the the weird thing about Alaska is that while being incredibly beautiful, it's also like, it sort of seems like everything in Alaska can kill you. You know what I'm talking about? So... So they'd be like, oh, look at this incredible herd of moose that are crossing the road. Isn't that beautiful? Like, don't get too close because they will pound you into a pulp with their front hooves. Or like, oh, the bald eagle soaring majestically. A beautiful picture of the freedom we have as Americans. But let's just hope it doesn't swoop down and peck out your eyes. You know, like, what? does That, that happens? You know, we, one day they... Uh, they go, hey, would you guys like to go out and see the glacier? Uh, apparently there was this beautiful glacier. I'd never seen a glacier up close. They said, we can actually go out and walk on the glacier. And we we're like, yeah, that sounds really cool. So we drive like an hour outside of town. They take us to this glacier and it's astound- like, it's just so beautiful. But as we're walking out onto the ice, the lady that took us out, she goes, hey, just so you know, um, there are these cracks in the ice, these uh, crevices, and occasionally people, while they're out here, will fall into them and uh, the problem is that scientists don't really know how deep they are or how deep they go and so if you fall into one of those you're gone baby that's it right they won't even bother looking for you you will just fall for a while and then presumably I, i don't know like get crushed at the wedge at the bottom somewhere and die and i thought to myself as she's telling me this like i don't need to see a glacier that bad you know what I mean? I could have just you could have just shown me like the glacier postcard. I'd have been fine to just look at your slides of your visit to the glacier the last time you came out here. But like her warning terrified me. I think at one point she was like, "Yeah, there was a Cub Scout troop and some of the kids fell in and I don't know, it's just be careful." And I thought, "I don't I don't want to walk on this glacier." Like her warning was meant to produce caution in me, and instead what it produced was like a complete like unwillingness to proceed, right? I didn't want to go any further. And so she kind of comes back around and she goes, but listen, even though there are these cracks in the ice and people do sometimes disappear into them, uh you know, you don't need to worry, she says, because you have good shoes. And I'm like, these are converse all-stars, right? I paid $10 for these. I've been wearing them for five years. These are not she goes, well you seem stable, you know, you seem like you've got good balance. I'm like, I can't even stand on a skateboard, you know? She's trying to affirm me. She's trying to, you know, sort of turn the corner and encourage me so that her warning doesn't have too much gravity and too much weight. She doesn't want to terrify me. The writer to the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has just given his audience, including us, a very stern warning about the potential to be in the periphery of faith and not truly be trusting in Christ. But he doesn't want us to be incapacitated by fear. He doesn't want us to be so terrified of falling away that we lose sight of the fact that this warning, while necessary, is just that. And so he moves into a section of encouragement. It's actually really cool. He says in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What does he mean? He says, though we speak in this way. He means in tones and terms of warning. Though we've just laid upon you some heavy stuff to process and think about, he says, in your case, beloved, it's worth noting, just if you're taking notes or you're trying to think through this text, this is the only place in the entire book of Hebrews where the writer refers to his audience as dear ones or beloved. It's a term of endearment, a term of affection. It's the only place where it occurs, but it speaks something really special to us. He says, even though I've just had to give you this warning, I love you. Even though I've just had to give you this stern reminder of a danger that that any of us could fall into if we're not careful, he says, I want you to know that you are my beloved, that you are my dear one. This term of affection is really important because it says to us something not just about what he's about to say, but about what he's already said. I think sometimes in our culture we sort of uh, we've come to this place where we start to think about love or affection or endearment as something that always feels good. So we feel loved by other people if they affirm us and if they make us feel good, if they give us stuff, if they never make us feel uncomfortable or you know they never call us on the carpet for anything. And the moment that someone starts to hold us accountable or the moment that someone comes along and says things that upset us, or the moment we have a difference of opinion on certain issues or particulars, then they don't love me. If they love me, they'd agree with me. They'd always make it comfortable and easy and nice. And, And what happens is we lose sight of the fact that sometimes the most loving thing is also the hardest thing. Right? That sometimes the most loving thing you can say to someone is to warn them that there are cracks in the ice they could fall into and die. And that to avoid saying that because you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, you don't want anybody to be scared, you don't want anybody to be uncomfortable, is actually less loving than giving them the warning. I mean, think about, for, I don't know if any of you have ever had to have the Heimlich maneuver administered to you, but there is nothing comfortable about the Heimlich maneuver, Right. <laughs> Sometimes in the process of having somebody administer the Heimlich maneuver to you, they break your ribs. It's a very painful thing, but here's the deal. No one whose life has been saved through the administration of the Heimlich maneuver complains about the broken ribs, you know what I'm saying? Because apart from that maneuver, they would be dead. It's the most loving thing to do, even though it can sometimes be a painful thing to do. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, though I've just spoken to you in these terms, loved ones, dear ones, those I love, I want you to know that even though there are those, and note the language here too. When he's talking about those who've tasted and experienced and been enlightened and yet fall away, he uses third person language. So look back in in chapter six in verse four. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. He says it's impossible in the case of those, right? He's referring to someone else. Now, in this encouragement section, his language changes. He's not talking about someone else hypothetically. He's talking about them personally. He says, though we speak in this way yet, in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. There's a personal engagement we see something of his affection. If you're a parent or you have raised kids or you've worked with kids, a grandparent or a babysitter or a childcare giver or whatever, you know that there are times in parenting where you have to say these things that that seem mean. And even your kids may sort of respond to you and go, you know, you're kind of a jerk, right? And, and I find myself, even as a dad, occasionally having to look at my kids and say that that terrible cliche, which is like, I'm only saying this to you because I love you, right? You've all heard that before. This hurts me more than hurts you. It hurts me to have to say this, but I have to say it because I love you. And I hear my own parents' voice in my head and I think, oh no, I've become them, right? But if you've raised kids and if you've been around those that you love and that you're trying to protect and care for, you know that there are absolutely times where you have to declare things, where you have to set parameters, where you have to set rules and guidelines for people, not because you hate them, not because you want to judge them, not because you want to make their life difficult, but because you truly love them more than anything, right? The author here says, beloved, even though I've spoken to you in this way, which is admittedly heavy, I am confident, he says, in your case, of better things. I'm confident of better things. What kind of better things? Well, he he tips his cards a little bit by saying the things that pertain to salvation. He says, we've just been talking about things that are tragic, worthlessness and cursing and burning. But he says, in your case, even though I had to bring that up, in your case, I expect better things. Well, what kind of better things? Well, in verse seven, he gives the illustration of the soil, right? So he's already said, land that receives the rain and produces fruit, what? It, it, that fruit is, the, is good for other people, for those for which it was cultivated, and it also receives a blessing from God. Verse 7 says, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing When he says, in your case, I'm confident of better things, things that pertain to salvation, he's talking about both that fruit that is produced out of a life that receives the rain and does something with it, but he's also talking about that second piece, which is the blessing of God on the parcel of land that produces fruit. He says we anticipate better things, and we don't have to go far to even be reminded of some of the kinds of things he's talking about. If we we flip back one chapter to Hebrews chapter five, when the author is uh, talking about Jesus, in the order of Melchizedek, he says in verse 9 of chapter, chapter 5, being made perfect, he, that's Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So when he says, I'm confident of better things for you, one of the better things he's talking about is literally resurrection life that's only possible through Christ. I don't think that you'll be worthless. I don't think that you're cursed, that you're going to be burned. I believe that better things will happen. I'm confident that better things will happen. Things like the salvation that is only procured through the death and resurrection of Christ. If we flip back to Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 16. Verse 4, uh, f- chapter 4 verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, what are some of these better things he's confident of that we would be obtaining mercy and grace when we need it? If we, if we flip to Hebrews chapter three, verse one, it says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. We talked when we studied Hebrews three about the fact that that heavenly calling is both a call from heaven, but it's also a call to heaven. That some of the better things that he's confident will be uh, happening in the life of his readers is is this heavenly calling by which God both calls us from heaven and calls us to the kingdom of God, calls us to heaven. He says, I look at you and I don't have any expectation of being cursed or being burned or falling away after having tasted and seen. When I look at you, he says, I'm confident of better things, the things that pertain to salvation. And the question then for us becomes, well, where does he get this confidence right? He's got this confidence. Is it confidence in their work? Is it confidence in their love or in their hope? He has confidence in what they've done, because he's going to talk about those things in a second. It's vital that you understand that he, he demonstrates for us where his confidence is. He says it in the next sentence. Back to Hebrews chapter six. He says, though we speak in this way, verse nine, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved or dear ones, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God, is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. He says, I have confidence in better things. Where's his confidence? He says, I have confidence because of God. And here, if you're like an English nut, you'll probably be bothered a little bit by the translation because in essence, what the writer of the Hebrews does, inspired by the Holy Spirit, no less, is he uses a double negative. I'm really sorry about that. There's no way around it, but he... He says, we have confidence in God because he is not so unjust as to overlook you and your faithfulness. What's he saying? He says, we have confidence in better things. We have confidence in better things. Why? Because of the justice of God. Because God is just. Now, it's funny. When we think about the justice of God, a lot of times we sort of cower from that, right? And we go, oh, no, no. God, He's a judge, right? He's gonna pour out His wrath, and He's this, you know. We don't, we don't, there's a lot of people who say, well, I don't really like the justice of God. I like the love of God. Can I tell you that His love flows from His justice or His holiness? Those are two sides of the same coin. The same justice that causes God to call men and women to be accountable for their sin. The same God in His justice who says the wages of sin is death is the same God who who blesses us for our obedience and our faithfulness. But it is his justice that makes that sure. It's his consistency and his holiness, his perfection that makes both of those things true, that he punishes sinners, but he is working actively through the death and resurrection of Christ to reconcile us to himself, that he will reward those who are faithful. So why is the author here confident of better things? He's confident not because of who they are. He's confident because of who God is. Because God is not so unjust as to overlook you. There is a reward. I think sometimes we we, we can sort of get too focused on rewards. Sometimes we get focused on like doing things to try and make God happy or to make God love us. Remember, we believe that we're saved by grace and grace alone. That the work that God does on our behalf, when Jesus comes and takes our sin upon himself, when he dies in our place, rises from the dead and extends to us resurrection life, that's a gift and just a gift. But there is absolutely a call in response to that gift to live holy lives. Titus says, the grace of God is teaching us to renounce ungodliness and to live holy lives while we await the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. His grace, the gift of God, teaches us to live holy lives. And those holy lives are not overlooked by God. In his justice, he sees them and there's a blessing. Remember the land that receives the rain and produces fruit? It is blessed by God. He says, I'm confident of better things because of the justice of God, because of the consistency of who he is. Look at what else he says here. He says, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He commends them. Remember what he's trying to do? He's trying to encourage them. He's nervous that they may have sort of been terrified by the warning. And he says, let me tell you, God is not going to overlook the great things I see. When I look around at the community, he says, I don't see people who've fallen away. I don't see people who just sort of seem like they're flirting around the periphery of faith, but I see evidence of actual love for the name of Christ. He says, God will not overlook your work, which was done because of your love of his name in serving the saints, as you still do today. He commends them for their service. You know, I think sometimes when we hear a warning like the one we heard last week, there can be a tendency on our part to go, yep, I bet there's a lot of people around here who are you know, in danger of falling away. I know a lot of people who are probably religious fakers. I can say there's plenty of those people in this church. I know a bunch of them. And there's plenty of those people in California for sure. And there's a lot of them in America. And there's plenty of those people. You know, And we can become real fatalistic, right? We start to see the fallen away almost everywhere. What the author's saying is there are some who, who will fall away. There are people who sort of look like they're in, but they've never trusted in Christ. But that's not you, he says, and I'm confident because of the justice of God that he will not overlook your love for his name, that is both a love for who he is primarily, but also a love for making his name known, a love for his glory. Because of your love for his name, he says, you've been doing this work of service. You've been doing this work of service. He says, be encouraged. I see it, the author says, and God won't miss it either. You know, in, in a place like this, you might be someone who walked out of a message last week feeling a little bit beat up, or a little bit hopeless, or a little bedraggled. Can I tell you that the author is asking his original audience, and then by inclusion, he's, he's asking us to look around and see the places where faithfulness abounds. It's, you literally cannot spin in a circle without seeing the evidence of a love for the name of Christ, even in our community right here. Are there problems? Are there flaws? Absolutely. But I'll tell you, there's way more incredible things that God's people are doing in this community than there are people who are falling away. I got the opportunity this week to meet for a little while with Connie Hutchison who oversees our, uh, our special needs ministry. If you've not met her, take that lady out to coffee and spend some time with her. She's an incredible woman who because of her great love for the Lord Jesus has dedicated herself to helping those who are disabled, those who have special needs, those who are marginalized and pushed to the periphery of our community. She's not only doing that herself personally, but she's raising up teams of people, handing off leadership to them. We've got incredible things happening around here. I would've been blown away to spend five minutes with her. I got to spend an hour and a half with her. I heard about things like our special needs ministry on Sunday morning. I heard about Rainbow Express, which happens in the summer. I heard about Royal Family Kids Camp, which reaches out and loves on foster kids and has been a ministry of this church for a long time and never had to do a fundraiser, right? Because people just give generously to that ministry. People serve generously. The special needs ministry around here is a perfect example of the work of service that happens because of a love for the name of Christ. They've got their, uh, their Christmas musical deal coming up on December 3rd. Put it on your calendar and be here because it is a perfect picture of this kind of service. I was at... Um, on Friday night, I got to go to the Prime Majors. That's one of our adult fellowships. I got to go to their uh, their Operation Christmas Child box stuffing event. They had like a party and they had all these boxes and they're filling them with toys and clothes and all kinds of different things to be sent to people who really wouldn't have much of a Christmas apart from that. Those are people who aren't just filling those boxes for the sake of going, hey, look at us. We're doing something good. Hey, I hope people recognize how much we love the poor, how much we love those who are hurt. no. Those people were gathered on a Friday night, and there are tons of other groups doing similar work. Why? Because of their love for Christ. You probably saw on your way in this morning, we've sort of kicked off our, uh, our Boxes of Love Thanksgiving project, right? Where every year we fill up these boxes, and we give them to people in our city who are hungry and in need. The, the, I think they said last year they were able to give out 800 of those boxes. This year we're trying to give out 850. I mean, that's kind of where they set their sights. I'd love it if we were able to fill 1,000 of those boxes, Not because we want to be able to write that down somewhere or we want to be able to talk about it, but because that's how much we love Christ. Because we love his name and our love for Christ is then manifested in action. He says, I have have confidence in better things, the things that pertain to salvation, because our God who is just will not overlook your love for his name that has resulted in tangible action. And not just tangible action in the past. Notice in verse 10, he says... You have uh, the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, and then what? As you still do, as you still do. What's He saying? It's not just great things that you did when you first fell in love with Jesus, or great things that you did when you first understood who He was, but it's love demonstrated in your life in an ongoing way. It's funny how many times I I talk to people and they go, "You know, in 1971, we took a team of people and we went and we built a house for a guy in you know Mazatlan, and it was this incredible." And I'm like okay, that's, I'm not trying to take away from the thing you did in Mazelan in 1971, but like, what else has happened, right? It's possible for us to get trapped in this deal where we're just replaying the highlight video, right? We're replaying our own highlight reels, like, uh, like Napoleon Dynamite's Uncle Rico, you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Where the guy sets up the video camera and he's trying to just throw the same pass he did in his glory days. I meet Christians who are living vicariously through the things they did because of their love of Jesus 20 years ago. He doesn't just commend them for the things they did 20 years ago or 10 years ago or a year ago or an hour ago. He says, I commend you for the way in which your love for the name of God is made manifest right now. So let me ask you this morning, how is the love of Christ, your love of his name, made manifest today? The stuff you did yesterday is spectacular. Praise God for that. But it's about continuance, right? And then he says this. In the same way that your love is shown in your service, right? In the same way that your love is shown in your service, let your hope, your full assurance of hope, be shown in imitation. Look at what he says next. Look at verse 11. He says, and we desire each one of you. But note here, there is, uh, in this word desired, there's this strong personal longing. Again, remember when he refers to them as beloved. This isn't a teacher. It's not a guy giving a lecture. This isn't someone who's prepared a speech for a group of people. This is someone who is speaking out of his love for them. He says, we desire that each one of you, right? Not just the big crowd, but each and every individual follower of Christ. He says, we desire that each one of you would show the same earnestness. That word earnestness could be translated diligence or uh, it could be translated devotion. We want you to show the same devotion. What, What kind of devotion, what are we talking about? What kind of earnestness or diligence? The earnestness with which you love the name of God, show that same devotion, show that same, well what kind of devotion is that? It's a devotion that isn't just intellectual, It's a devotion that goes from the intellectual to the physical, right? It's an intellectual love of Christ that is made manifest in service. He says, in the same way, have an intellectual full assurance of hope that is made manifest in action. Love and hope. Love and hope. Love, by the way, love for the name of Christ is a love for who he is in the present and what he's done in the past, right? If you're here this morning and you say, I love Jesus, you love who he is and you love what he's done in that order, right? Hope full assurance of hope is a love for Christ in the present who he is and what he has promised. That's what a full assurance of hope is. It's present and future. Love is present and past. We love him and we hope in his promises. We have full assurance of hope, but it's still centered on him first who he is. Our hope is in who he is, and what he has promised, in that order. He says, have this same earnestness, have this same diligence, have this same drive, this devotion to hope that you have for love. You have this love that produces action. Have the same kind of hope, because look at what it produces. He says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. There's that idea, again, of continuance, right? We've seen that uh, already in our study in Hebrews, Hebrews 3.14, Remember, he says, we know we share in Christ if we continue until the end with the faith we had at first. It's not just a great celebration. It's not just a great conversion story. It's not just a great moment of meeting Jesus. It's a life of discipleship. That's why we say following Christ, not just believing in Christ, right? He says, you continue this hope, this full assurance of hope until the end, so that, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. Okay, There's an interesting contrast here because in chapter five, remember what he said, I want to talk to you about mature things, but I can't, he says, because you're sluggish, which essentially means dull of hearing. That you're dull of hearing. I can't because you're dull of hearing. Here in chapter six, he gives the antidote to sluggishness. The antidote to sluggishness is a full assurance of hope. And here's what he's trying to provoke in the audience. When he said in chapter five, I want to talk to you about spiritual maturity. I want to talk to you about deep things in the faith, but I can't because you're sluggish. He wanted the audience. He wanted us to go, hey, I'm not sluggish. I'm not dull of hearing. How dare you? I mean, I can take the meat. Bring it. I can bring it, right? He wanted us to respond and object. And so in essence, in six, what he's saying now is, okay, I'm willing to concede that you may not be dull, that you may not be sluggish, And if that's the case, then also don't let yourself become that way in the future. I'm willing to concede that you may not be dull, so don't become dull. How do we avoid sluggishness, he says, by having a full assurance of hope until the end. Look at what he says, so that you may not be sluggish, but instead imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's juxtaposing something else here, right? Remember when we were looking at Hebrews 3 and 4. In Hebrews 3 and 4, he says, be careful that you don't do what the Israelites did, right? Don't fall into the same trap the Israelites did because what, they saw God, they experienced him, they'd seen his power, they'd tasted the manna, they were going where he told them to go, and when they stood on the edge of the promised land and they had the opportunity to enter his rest, they were not able to enter his rest, why? Because their knowledge of God was not coupled with faith, They knew all kinds of things about him, but they didn't trust him. So he says in three and four, do not imitate them, right? Don't imitate them. Now we get to six, and he says, instead, imitate those who inherit the promises, right? Imitate those who inherit the promises. And he's gonna go on, in the text we study next week, he's gonna go on and talk about Abraham, who's one example of someone who came before us who inherited the promises of God through faith and perseverance, or faith and patience. You know, it's important for us to have people that we imitate, that we follow after, people who persevere, people who've been faithful. We are celebrating this week the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and that might not mean much to you, but in essence, when we talk about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we're talking about the day when Martin Luther said, no more. I'm not going to put up with the indulgences of the Catholic church and and all the, 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 the places in which it's come off the wheels. And he writes his 95 theses and he nails them to the church doors. And then there are a series of early church fathers, men and women, people who were following God because of their love for Christ and their full assurance of hope made manifest in reform. Right. So we're celebrating this week. There are lots of people that we could look to Lots of people who've come before us, both people that we know personally and people that we can read about or study, who persevered until the end with the faith they had at first. Faith and patience. But here's, here's the last thing. I know, I know it's a lot, right? He says this. He says, you don't want to be sluggish. You want to be imitators. I think there can be a sort of a danger for us in a teaching like this to go, okay, fine. Uh, so what's the text saying? Okay, I gotta, I gotta work, right? I gotta work at serving other people. So I gotta serve other people and uh, that's gonna mean making sacrifice. So I'm gonna be a servant, I'm gonna be sacrificial, I'm gonna, um, and what else does it say? Oh, I'm supposed to be an imitator of other people. So I'm gonna start going through the motions. I'm gonna find some, you know, Christians to imitate and then I'm gonna inherit the promises, right? I don't wanna not inherit them, I'm gonna inherit. So I'm just gonna go do it. Listen, th- this isn't a text that's giving you things to go and do. Right? This, there's, no, there's no instruction in the text about things to go and do, and you would make a mistake if you just tried to do them. If you just tried to serve, or you just try and inherit the promises, or you just try and imitate other people, you won't be able to keep that up. It's not sustainable. Right? What, what is he talking about here? What does he encourage them in, and what does he commend them for? He doesn't commend them for the things they do, he commends them for their love and their hope. Their love and their hope then manifest in service and imitation and inheritance, in faith and in patience. But all of those things are a byproduct of love for Christ and his name and hope, full assurance of hope. Who Christ is and what he's done, who Christ is and what he's promised to do. You center your mind, you center your thoughts on Christ. It's the theme of the whole book, right? If you haven't picked that up already, this is where we've been and it's where we're going again Look to Christ, fix your eyes on Christ, the anchor of our souls. Having the right and proper understanding and belief and love and trust in Christ produces in us all these other things. He says, even though I've had to share with you some heaviness, my beloved, I'm confident of better things because of who God is You see, because of God's justice, he isn't going to overlook your love for his name that has resulted in works of service for one another and continues to happen, and in the same way show earnestness or devotion to full assurance and hope who he is and what he will do so that through that hope you will be imitators of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. It's an encouragement to us in the text that those who God will not overlook and who inherit the promises are those who love Christ and trust him. Where love and hope exist, service, sacrifice, faith, and patience abound. You want to see those things in your life? Look to your love. Look to your hope. Center those things on the Lord Jesus Christ and then the rest of this stuff will take care of itself. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would move in each of us to not be so scared of the journey ahead or to be so jarred by the warnings that we would miss the fact that the warnings come from a heart of love, that you warn us because you love us, that you discipline us because you love us, and that in the same way you've given us these warnings in chapters five and six, you also encourage us that you are just, and that you see our love and our hope, that you will empower us to live like you, to be a loving community, united in sacrifice for the glory of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.